Welcome to Prospecting Purpose, where we explore mining's role in shaping a sustainable, socially just, and brighter future. I'm Liz Friel, your host for the series, with a rotating guest on every episode. Have you found yourself curious about the growing chatter on diversity in business? Maybe you're a bit confused by the growing list of terms, diversity, inclusion, equity, access. How are they related, and what do they mean in the mining context? Where's mining at? Where are we headed? What's progressing well, and what do we really need to work on? That's exactly what we're going to focus on today. Joining us on this episode is Jamile Cruz, founder of IND 101, a consulting firm specialized in inclusion and diversity strategies with a focus on mining. Jamile has over 20 years of experience in this industry, with renowned names like Hatch, Ballet, and Accenture. Concentrating on the inclusion of underrepresented groups in the industry, she offers a wealth of contextualized knowledge when it comes to developing and implementing diversity strategies. Welcome, Jamile. Thank you, Liz, for having me here today. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Super to have you on the show. I'm excited to chat a bit about diversity. But before we start, can I ask you, what first got you into the mining industry and how did you develop this focus on diversity and inclusion specifically? Well, mining industry was by accident. (laughs) I actually expected or I wouldn't say I dreamed of, but I planned to work in the oil and gas industry. My dad worked in the oil and gas industry in Brazil and I started working engineering or first I did telecommunications, actually. I have a degree in telecommunications and then I went for electrical engineering and on that road worked for many companies. And when I decided that I wanted to have an experience abroad, I actually got a job with Hatch. Uh, Hatch was opening an office in Sao Paulo. Uh, They had projects here in Brazil and they wanted Brazilian engineers to work with their office in Canada to learn a little bit of the Hatch way and come back. And on that way, I started and didn't know what I was signing up for, but there was a lot of mining projects ahead of me. And as you can imagine, even though I went for a one-year exchange program, by joining a mining project, at the end of the one year, they're like, okay, this project's not going to end today, so we expect you to stay stay a little longer. Can you stay? I was like, sure. And four years later, I was still there, and the rest is history. And the rest is history. And so what about the diversity and inclusion part? How did you get into that element? So part of my work has always been connected very much with capital projects. And in capital projects, there's always that phase of development when we start talking about talent strategies and how we're going to bring people to site. And to me, it was always very impressive how the conversation around talent is always just a human resources number, right? Like it's a very direct conversation about how you're going to bring people, where you're going to find them. But there wasn't really a lot of discussion around talent strategy. Like, who are these people? How are they going to fit in our culture? How are we deciding who is who here? How do we place people from our communities, right? There's always this commitment with local government to place people from the community. Which positions are they going in? Do they have a say on how we're designing the plan? So to me, that was always very fascinating. Plus, I lived in Saskatchewan for a while doing a mining project. So the relationship with local communities, with indigenous people from Saskatchewan. So there was a lot of discussions that to me caught my interest. And I was like, okay, there is something to discuss here. Plus I'm an immigrant, I'm a black woman, I'm an engineer. And those things usually don't fit into the same room, I would say. Also being in a position in mining. So being the one and only in a lot of the rooms, I felt like there were questions to be addressed. And one of them, it's like, why was I the only one so many times? So I decided to ask a lot of questions. And through my work with Accenture, there was a lot of transformation projects. So I started getting way and way more involved. And that's how 
I decided to ask the questions and drive the change. That's fantastic. And now here we are, and you're running your own company, and you're helping the industry get better at this. Because by now, most of them have heard that diversity and inclusion is key to, as you mentioned, attracting talent, but also fostering innovation, financial performance, enhancing your reputation. There's actually some really awesome statistics that I wanted to quote as we start the episode here about the value of diversity for anyone in the audience who doesn't know. Because today, over three quarters of business leaders think diversity and inclusion is a competitive advantage, and there's a reason for that. There's some really awesome statistics about the value of diversity in a company. For example, over three quarters of leaders now think that diversity is a competitive advantage, and it's no wonder because statistically, you're twice as likely to meet or exceed your financial targets. You're three times as likely to be high-performing as your peers, six times more likely to be innovative, and eight times more likely to achieve just a better business outcome overall. So the business case is basically a no-brainer, and people are starting to hear that. So how I think that、um, is really the question where a lot gets stuck. So maybe let's dig into clarifying first some confusion around the key terms that we hear a lot in this field, because first we saw the word diversity emerge, then we started hearing about inclusion going mainstream, and more recently we're also hearing the addition of equity and access. So what is the difference between these four words, and how do they relate to each other? I. Believe we started with diversity because it's the easy one to see, right? When I think diversity, the easiest one to think about is representation. So I want to see myself represented in different places on TV, but also not associated with a specific stereotype. So when you think about diversity, you think representation. When we talk about inclusion, we start talking about the cultural aspect. So how people act, how people speak, and how that makes people feel, right? So. Do I feel included somewhere? Do I feel like I belong here? Right? The word B you didn't mention, but the B in some companies they use the I B, so diversity, inclusion, belonging. Yes. So the sense of belonging comes very much from this culture of inclusion, right? You feeling that you belong to that space. Yeah. The whole idea of equity. We started probably this conversation years ago, hitting on the idea of equality, and mostly when we're talking about gender. But I think there is a better understanding now, and we start using the word equity because there is an understanding that historically some groups are discriminated against, and we need to start changing that perspective. And sometimes there is an imbalance in a perspective of changing bias in processes, talking about recruiting, talking about promotion, that needs to be addressed from an equitable perspective. And then access, unfortunately, like one of the groups that we. Discriminate the most against, right? That doesn't have a space in society are people with disabilities. So when we think about even design of mining organizations, like we're having, we're starting to have a very inclusive organization on engineering design now of designing inclusive workspaces. So is the place design? Is the plant design? Is the office design to include all people? So that's that's another element. And just going back quickly to the business case conversation. I have to comment on Sarah Kaplan. Sarah Kaplan is the leader from the Gender Economy Institute at University of Toronto,、mm-hmm. and I remember the first time I watched her presenting, she said something on the lines of "F-word business case," because we all feel that way, right? There are tons of reports showing the business case, but the business case doesn't make people engage. So her last book, which is the 360 Corporation, talks very much about that: how we have a moral case. A business case and then the legal case. Everything needs to go kind of in parallel. But as our Prime Minister of Canada says, it's not only the right thing to do; it's the moral case, but it's also the smart thing to do. What's the business case? So, 
I do feel, though, as a consultant, that I do get that question quite often, Sue, on debating What's the, the business, business case. case. So yeah. what I love to see now, the development of things, is that companies like BHP, who did that commitment to gender balance by 2025, if you go to the gender equation, which is their website promoting the information associated to their targets, you can see key KPIs from the industry, which are safety, productivity, culture, being related to the advancement that they're making on gender inclusion, which I think is where we want to get. Yeah, for sure. That's great. You're, you're already rolling right into my next question, which is, let's look at mining specifically on these various subjects. I mean, this whole theme we know is one of our most lagging ESG performance areas, like by far. And I think that's super important because a lot of those benefits we've been talking about, like why diversity and inclusion, there's a good business case, are also areas that we already struggle with as an industry historically. So say, let's start with gender, okay? Because the inclusion of women has probably been our most long-standing diversity focus area. So currently here in Canada, last I checked, women represent just 16% of the mining workforce, and we have the lowest representation of women on boards of any other sector. That includes oil and gas, tech, manufacturing. Why for you do we lag historically so much on this point, even despite efforts? I usually say that mining goes with the word tradition, and they use tradition to essentially stop innovation. And innovation being one of those Themes, right? We, we say innovation within technology, but innovation can take many forms. And one of the forms of innovation in talent strategy would be include more people and include different people than your tradition is. Social I think, innovation. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that culture of this is what we have and this is what we're used to essentially enables the continuation of that culture. So we know, like we joke sometimes when you go to PDAC, for example, that you kind of know everybody, even when I yeah. talk about like mining industry in Brazil, mining industry in Canada, mining industry in Australia. Like once you worked for, like I've been in the business now for 15 years connected to mining, you kind of know the people, right? You know the CEOs that are moving around, you know the CFOs, and the same for the key operational people. So with that idea, people will start giving jobs to like, we do that. That's human nature. You call who you know, you call who you trust, you call people who have same background as you, same education as you. So that yeah. is the propagation of, yeah, it's comfortable. So that's why we need systematic change, because unless you are very intentional about correcting that way of operating, we can change that. Yeah, for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Of course, it's not all bad. Uh, <laughs> we should recognize that we have made a lot of progress that's worth celebrating, particularly when you, you read different stories around the world, around the history of mining. We've, we've come a long way. What do you think are some of the greatest successes that we have had in our diversity and inclusion journey as an industry? I believe there's more engagement now. I would say the conversations we're having today are not the conversations we're having five years ago and definitely not 10 years ago. I think the space that's been created by the indexes coming from investment firms to the actual commitment coming from companies that are ahead of the game, there is always the curve and there is always the ones ahead of the curve. So a few of them pushing the bar and getting to show the results is actually moving us along. So I would say... The commitment level has changed. The conversation has had an upgrade. Definitely last year with everything that happened from a social justice perspective, there is even a, an extra upgrade. No longer the discussions gender only. To me, it's probably that's the biggest gain of 2020. I know we all suffered with COVID-19 and we're still suffering, but I think yes. changing and shifting the conversation to include more people and to recognize the level of privilege that some groups have 
has definitely changed the conversation and moving towards action now in a way that I haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to actually ask, I'm glad that you bring that up, about some of the really important social justice and equality movements that we've been experiencing recently, even in light of COVID-19 and and the way that that has sort of shut down the world um, in 2020. And I wanted to mention Black Lives Matter in particular because it has brought so much awareness to so many people across countless industries, right? I'm seeing a lot of articles and videos come up online across different industries that are really trying to elevate voices of color. And one thing that I see called out a lot is the issue of company culture and the need to completely rewire company culture at the core. And I wonder if you think that resonates as well for the mining industry. And if we do need to do more of that, what does that actually take? Yeah, so I... I think we need to shift everything, to be honest, and and culture comes with that, right? It's in everything that we do. When I think about Black Lives Matter and everything that people are starting to learn, when I get calls from clients now, the conversation is to an educational piece, right? It's about understanding why we're not participating. What are the historical issues that happen? Why are things happening the way they are? So like when we talk about unconscious bias and the basics of understanding human behavior, we're still on a very, like, I usually show a maturity curve and we're still on a very, like, reactive way. Something happens, we're like, okay, let me research this. Let me learn a little bit more because maybe I'm behind. So I think there's a lot of that. And then if we go back into the gender discussions, we did change, but there's still a lot of that to work in mining, you have to be tough. And it's not just mining. When we talk about the legal profession, investment banking, which are all very associated with this industry as well, there is that culture, like, I used to hear that a lot. You're a woman, but you're here because you're strong or because you can manage this. And I was like, I don't want to be in an industry where I have to operate in a certain way to be able to fit in here, right? It should be something that's inclusive of all. And I shouldn't be able to be super tough and like be the engineer who can take this environment to be able to belong here and participate and, and grow in this industry. So I think there's a huge shift that we need into the you don't need to be tough to be able to perform well. We need to just connect right. the whole thing and, and be able to start over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that'll be a massive shift. Probably do a whole other episode on how <laughs> do you do that. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we, we had some successes. There's some specific challenges around culture for sure. I'd like to know, despite a lot of the advances that we've made, let's face it, the industry is still overwhelmingly white, male, and aging. Could you maybe share a bit with the audience around what are some specific types of diversity in addition to the ongoing focus that we have had on women and and certainly need to have that we still don't think about enough as an industry in this conversation that could be really meaningful to moving the needle? For example, race, age, sexual orientation, uh, socioeconomic origin, geography, academic background, these sorts of things. Yeah, I love the conversation. So I would start from a good case scenario and a, a good effort that has been put by mining industry human resource. So near, I think people call them MIHR. Uh, they essentially did a whole effort around Im- immigrants because we we know this. How many times maybe you took a cab or you went somewhere where you just didn't expect the person to be an engineer or to have a PhD on something special that you're like, oh my gosh, how do you get a PhD on chemistry or whatever? So you have those people in Canada operating in in situations that are not ideal to their profession, to their career, to their background, to everything that they've done in the past. Because, and I had this conversation with PH and PO a few times, like you need to 
review your processes. And when we talk about systemic changes, that's what we need to look into. So when we're talking about inclusions, the work from MIHR, for example, an inclusion of international professional, professionals into the mining industries. We know, as we just talked earlier today, that the mining industry is this very close group of people, this bubble that's it. Once you're in, you're in, but it's hard to get in. So when a new professional gets to Canada, even with an amazing resume, with work that they've done in similar plants somewhere else, they do have a very difficult time entering the industry. So we need to start looking at the ways we hire, how we talk to people, how do like the type of resumes that we actually see. And you talked about innovation, right? One of those things around inclusion diversity that is really advancing are the tools for you to do more towards the blind assessment of resumes and stopping the system from uh, stopping people right at the beginning. You're out of the door before you actually stepped into the door. So I think we need to start looking to that. So yeah, I would say for Canada, especially the access to immigrants from different countries to the industry is something that's too challenging. But then, yeah, we could go into people with disabilities, race, even though we started the conversation last year, I would say it's probably the first year that the conversation actually started happening before any room that I was invited to talk about inclusion diversity. If I talked about race, you could see people turning their eyes. They're like, okay, here she comes, right? People are just not ready well, for Well, and that's why I think it's such an interesting thing to, to bring up, why, like, why Black Lives Matter has brought so much awareness. Well, what is that? What is happening now in mining? Now that we've seen this movement that you can't ignore, it's all over the news, and it's, you know, it's a very real issue in our industry. Yeah, and the beauty about talking about race the way we started last year, MAC, for example, the Mining Association of Canada put this statement late in December saying, okay, we're going to support the fight in the Canadian industry, mining industry to stop sexism and racism. So we had a conversation about like, what does that really mean? Let's talk about educators. Let's talk about really putting actions that you're going to create the accountability because a lot of what we're talking about here. People kind of know what's the right thing to do, but then what are the systems that are going to push them to do those things? So when we talk about culture and we talk about hiring and bringing people into the table, how do you do that if the system only allows you to continue to do what we've been doing for 100 years? So we need to yeah. start rethinking. Absolutely. And what do you think are some of the areas where we have the biggest gaps as an industry Maybe at the company level, in your consulting work, for example, what are some of the most frequent gaps that you see where we should be focusing? What are the related challenges and barriers to progress? So leadership commitment, I think it's where it starts, but it's also where it stops. The whole idea of inclusion diversity being a business priority, to me, it's initial conversation. So when people invite me in to have a conversation with their leaders to say, let's do a lounge. We need to define inclusion diversity for our organization. We need to understand what it means to us. Those are some of my questions. Like, so when you say business priority, what it means? Like, talk to me about some of your other business priorities, because I've worked for years on digital transformations and digital strategy for mining. And I remember coming with a team of consultants, technical architects and and everybody, and they're ready to have us discussing, okay, this is how you implement AI into your project. This is how you implement drones. But then when we talk about inclusion diversity, they're like, yeah, but I assign someone part-time from HR and this person's going to figure out. I was like, how? <laughs> so like the level of investment and the concept of what a business priority is to me, it's just so disconnect. So the, the question to be asked is like, if you're saying it's a business priority, where is the allocation of resource? 
who is this active sponsor for this project? How are you going to do it? Do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan? And those things, unfortunately, are not there yet. Yeah. Okay. And that makes me think of the metrics piece as well, right? And I mentioned before, we know that this is one of our lagging ESG issues. We know that because of metrics. How important do you think the use of metrics are, especially when you think about the power of things like data analytics or even just ordinary KPIs that we check in regularly uh, about our people management and our overall business strategy? Yeah, I would say this is the beautiful thing about being an engineer moving into inclusion diversity. <laughs> I love You're like, yay, numbers. <laughs> I was like, where are your numbers? And you yeah. would be surprised by the number of people who make statements like, I think we're okay, or we're inclusive over here. There are women in our organization. They're like, look around, we're diverse. It's like, okay, there's one, right? <laughs> and we have research that shows this, like that from an image perspective and a perception perspective, when there's one or two women on the board, for example, the perception is that there's more. I think we need to start really looking into that and, and having an honest conversation about the numbers. So when we ask about HR analytics, I'm still so shocked by the number of companies who don't do the basics. So we're doing this whole project with Women in Mind in Brazil, and one of the beautiful things of putting that industry-wide project and set indicators with the approval or with the validation and agreement from the companies themselves is that they're agreeing to start tracking. So when we look into, okay, let's look at your voluntary turnover and tell me the difference between gender, for example, or are you tracking the age of people, who is leaving, who is staying? And then once you start seeing those numbers, it's so much easier to create the actions, right? Because then you can be punctual. You can be very specific about where the problems are and how to fix them. Totally. Very management consulting of you. Manage what you measure, measure what you manage. <laughs> when you look at that data, does it reflect the way, you know, leadership in general sees their performance? Or are we doing better or worse than the average mining leader thinks we are, basically? I think human behavior, right? We always think we're doing better than we are. So I think in terms of representation, we're starting to see changes. And, and I always say, like, give me money, I'll fix diversity. Because essentially, like, you can't hire. It's not a lie that people are out there. So you can say, like, I can't find this person. Maybe for, like, your very top executive, if you want 30 years of experience in metallurgical processing, there are very specific terms that people put on requirements for job descriptions that it might limit you to 10 people in the world. And then to find the one woman or the one racialized person within that group might be a little bit of a challenge. But one of the questions to be asked of people is, are those requirements real requirements? Or are you putting that requirement because you want that specific person to take the job? I think we need to start really looking into what's required for those jobs. That's one of the first exercises we do, like put on the job description what you really need versus this wish list that we already know, right? Tons of research shows that men will apply, women will not if they only meet like what? I think the average is if you have a list of 10 things, right? Men will apply when they tick six of the 10 boxes and the average woman who ticks 10 of them still might not apply and doubt herself. <laughs> There's, exactly. there's a whole so, different thing about, about that, but that's and then, huge. And we don't see research or we don't have yet research from the other underrepresented groups, but you can imagine, right, the challenge of getting in. I, I always say, like, in mining in Canada, if you're not from Queens, you're already side behind. So there, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, and, and, and those are the things that you hear when you're sitting with the big guys, but we need yes. to start changing that. 
that's not okay. And we, when we are in the room together with them, that's the whole thing about see something, say something. Is to say like, why cannot be someone from a different university? Why do you have this line in the job description? Like, what does that change on the everyday performance of that person being from this specific school or that school? or having operate on this specific treatment plant versus that one. So I think asking those honest questions and first writing things that are really required will just open doors for many more people. And one of the tactics that we use, and I heard examples from Tech Resource, for I think they, were like, they had a great example where there was a job description that essentially eliminated women from participating because it required a certain level of training and they went to research and that training, they could essentially pay for that training in 20 days. People could have that. And just by making that little change, they could essentially change the perspective and, and put so many more women in that specific group that before for many years had almost no representation. So those are the, the small things that we can start looking. So organizations call me and say, OK, we don't know where to start. It's like, what's important to you as an organization? So if you're already heavily invested on the community where you're operating, how are you investing in that community? Then can we apply the gender lenses? Can we look into race? How can you invest your money in a way that's more aware of the demographics and that you actually support everybody who participates in this community? Yeah, that's fantastic. If you think about going back to indicators again, what do you think could be some other indicators that if you were to advise a mining company, what are some other indicators that they could be pulling in to better understand where they're at and how they're doing uh, in progress over time? See what, like how effective some of these measures are. Yeah, so we, the two big ones for measuring diversity usually are, hard, well, three big ones, hiring, promotion, and retention. So people usually focus right away on hiring. So they're going to start showing their metrics, like we hired this many percentage of women and racialized people, and this is what we're doing. But then promotion starts kind of fading. Nobody talks about it anymore. They won't look at their numbers. They're like, well, but these are the people who are in the pipeline for promotions. Did you look into the pipeline, how that pipeline was formed? So you need to start going into every layer. And the big one is retention. Like it's impressive how many people don't look at turnover numbers with lenses of diversity and inclusion. You need to look into who is leaving. Yes, you had an amazing successful year for a mining company, for example, where you hired 55% women of all your incoming people in the operations. But then year two, 35% of the people who left or more were like women. So how, how do you do this? If you, if you don't start looking at retention number and being very serious about analyzing where are the problems. And another big one for inclusion diversity is really the complaints. We always talk about respect at work and culture, but Respect at work, if it's just a policy, means very little. So you're not doing much to protect your employees. So when you have a strong policy, what are the ways that people report that? Do you have people who are outside of their everyday who they can actually call and have a conversation and say, this is what's happening. What's my line of action here? What can I do to be protected? Because everybody's afraid of retaliation, right? You don't want to report someone above you without having that feeling that you're going to be protected. So we need to look into what respect at work means, what are the values of an organization, and then put the right uh, items in place to support people when they do fall into, into vulnerable positions and they need to do something about it. Absolutely. 
And are those mechanisms safe and trusted and predictable? Um, I imagine you can apply a lot of the exact same principles that we use when we create grievance mechanisms or feedback mechanisms in our communities uh, to our staff internally as well. So, in fact, there's a lot of overlap. And the indicators are there, right? You can track each one of them. And I'm always impressed when companies come along and it's like, oh, we have no complaints or two complaints last year. It's like, like that means your mechanism's not working. <laughs> yeah, you're a company of 10,000 people and you think only two people had issues. You should be searching for where the issues are, right? So I, I think there's a lot to be done, yeah. Yeah. And so building on that, um, you know, safe space uh, retention element, I'd like to focus a little bit on the leadership part too, diversity and leadership. So we've made progress in some of the most basic indicators at trying to get, you know, diverse leadership. In the highest levels of management, here and there, we see a woman who's brought into the C-suite or the board, and even those KPIs still aren't where they should be. And then there's this whole breadth of other types of diversity metrics that we lag when it comes to leadership. And I sometimes wonder, why do we see so few, for example, people of color, indigenous peoples, uh, local community members from where you are mining in the C-suite or on the board? And I imagine there's some deeper root cause stuff there, uh, perhaps linked to the retention challenges, but perhaps other things as, as well. There's still very much a certain type of person that climbs the corporate ladder that ends up at, a, at the board table. What do you think are some of the most important areas that we lag when it comes to diversity and leadership, and how can we improve that? Yeah, I was even reading the paper you you provided for us to prepare for this conversation, and the word "fitting in" is there, right? Or the two words are there, and I think for every organization that uses that as the way to decide, that one of the criteria to decide if someone is coming in or not, or staying or not, it's do they fit in? They need to relook into it, right? Because what does the fit in mean? And I think when we think about boards, it's pretty much that. We need to the look into... The old boys club. <laughs> yeah. And then Unfortunately, some. Unfortunately, it's a lot of that too, right? So as you said, like the numbers are not where it needs to be. I had a conversation with a company that they've been on the 30% club, which essentially means you sign up to have 30% of your board diverse from a gender perspective. And they had zero for like five plus years. It's like, how do you justify that? And you're like the speaker in like, I don't know how many events from this organization. Can you not look into your organization? They actually put two more people into the board. And again, two older white men. It's like, okay, so do we need to have a real conversation here about how that selection happened? And maybe it was natural to you, but that's the whole thing. We need to challenge what's natural, right? So I think... We need to really start looking into this concept of culture and fit in and what does that mean to you. And if you try to describe that, if you start finding then kind of some of the things that needs to be challenged of that description, I think that's a starting point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. On a lot of levels, that actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's shift to change now for a moment. We're looking to the future. One thing that I know you talk about a lot is the importance of shifting from what we call organic change to systemic change or systematic change. Can you describe what that's all about and what's challenging about getting it right? I remember being at the, I think it was the second day of CIM conference in Montreal, and we had someone from CCDI, so the Canadian Center of Innovation Inclusion, making a whole conversation around diversity and inclusion, and she showed numbers from MIHR with where we are in the industry. And someone 
was able to pick up the microphone at the end of that whole session where she proved by numbers. Like there wasn't really just a guessing game on where we are in the industry. Like here are the numbers of today. Someone got the microphone to say, I don't think we have a problem. <laughs> uh, I've been in the mining industry for 40 plus years and I think the culture is awesome. And I don't know why we're talking about this. With that kind of behavior, <laughs> I think we, we show a lot of kind of this challenge we go into this concept that things are going to flow and things can be organic. But the reality is a lot of the people participating today or don't think there's a problem or they see the everyday world outside and they walk into the organization and it's nothing like the everyday world, but they're still okay with it because they're being benefited by that world. So when I work directly with CEOs in Toronto, I always ask, did you take the TTC today? Did you take transit to get here? And if they did, it was like, so... When you walked away from that transit, from Metro, and walking to your office, did you feel like you left Toronto to walk into Finland or <laughs> something like that? Because that's the reality, right? Like you walk into offices in Toronto and you were like in a whole different world. So if you're not asking why that's happening and why you're okay with it, there's something to be done there. So like this whole concept of organic, of Canada is a diverse place, our talents diverse, by nature, we're going to get somewhere. The, the honest truth is that it's not. So when we talk about systematic change, it's for you to start putting the systems, correcting the bias embedded in each system, making a conscious effort and being very intentional about the change that we're doing. That's why we talk so much about KPIs, of creating indicators, setting targets, because organically, we're not getting much far. Yeah, absolutely. So who's doing it well that we can look to in the industry? Yeah, You get that it's a good thing to do. You're not really sure how to get there. Who can we look to? There are a few companies that I think are a little bit on the roof that it's a little bit ahead of the game, right? And I, I don't work directly with some of these companies, so I can, this is not a testament of their culture, so I'm not saying they're amazing. So people's experience are different everywhere. And most of these companies are very international as well. So they're operating in different places. But I would say from a KPI perspective and setting targets and very having very intentional changes in some of their work locations, I would say BHP is one to watch. So go to their website. You can even learn so much just by reading the way they're treating the team. Another one that I... I have more of a personal connection and even the CEO was part of my panel for PDAC. We did the recording earlier today. It's Nexa Resources. So they operate in Brazil, they operate in Peru, and they are doing what they call is their plurality program. So they already went beyond gender. So they're talking about people with disabilities. They're talking about multiculturalism. They do the tracking about age. So they look into their workforce from an age group. And they're doing different ways of in involving people. They have programs uh, around health. So they, they put groups of employees together to work out together and, and talk about mental health openly. So I love some of the work that they're doing. Uh, and another company I'd like to share is Shared International here in Canada. They, they are definitely committing. So they make commitments around Target. Again, they did a whole work around uh, mental health day. They're, they're like Black History Month. I know they're having a more of an honest conversation they had last year when everything happened. So, yeah, I think there are a few companies that are at least from a leadership commitment and getting the conversation to the table in a very intentional way and saying we're going to set targets, we're going to have this conversation, we're going to start taking action and put a framework to change. I would say some of these are companies to at least learn a few things about. Cool. So what about outside the industry? Are, like, are there any companies you're like, yeah, they're awesome. We can learn from them. 
<laughs> it's always funny, and I feel like I need to be extra careful because there was a fintech company from Brazil that everybody was commenting because their numbers on inclusion of LGBTQIA was impressive from a tech perspective, women. And then one of the founders went on a TV show and said the most horrendous things about racialized people. So we're like, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> so, and again, like we're in a culture where we are learning. So we need to be careful about this as well, right? People are allowed to, to make mistakes. And I think we are here to learn together. Like I didn't know so many things, right? Like I, I think when I decided to make a transition to work in inclusion diversity, I went to conference, I bought way too many books <laughs> and, and there's so much to learn and to talk to specialists like Sarah Kaplan, to Wendy Kukir, like from Ryerson. There's so many groups in Canada where the information is there, the research is there to support. One of the things that companies need to do is to open up and search for specialists, search for experts, search for research to be able to do the change correctly. But when you ask me like, what are the best ones? We used to talk about Google culture uh, being like one of the cultures to watch and look at what we have today. I think we need to be very careful about pointing out the bright stars because unfortunately we don't have access to the inside to see how people are really feeling in these organizations. That theme keeps coming up a lot on so many different subjects about all that can be gained if we would just open up and get really honest about our pain points and what's hard because that's the starting place of things getting better. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to... I think we talk about cancellation of culture and people, which I think is a horrible thing, by the way. I think we need to, to start being more inclusive on the conversation as well, right? I think when I go into organizations to have the conversation, I think the starting point is usually that. It's not that there is no stupid question, but if you don't create a space where people feel comfortable to ask the questions that they have in their heads, because not everybody's going to pick a book to read about Black history in Canada and say, okay, now I get it. If we're being hired and if we're open up for the conversations and we're asking questions, let's be open about having this conversation. Of course, we're, we need to be careful about who we ask and how we ask. It's not my role to teach every single person about race, about uh, sexism and all of that. But at the same time, let's open the space to have an honest conversation about what's going on, what's privilege and how we can move along this curve together. Like we, we, we get better when we work together. Yeah, absolutely. So true. That reminds me also of when I used to work at tech, there was this brilliant uh, corporate indigenous training program that they roll through the company from time to time for folks to just learn learn a bit about the history because that's a company that works in a lot of indigenous communities and people ne don't necessarily know what they don't know when you're a non-indigenous person. And it can make such a big difference to the way you interact with indigenous peoples, both inside uh, the company and, and when you're out in the community. And I found that really valuable because one of the biggest things was starting out with, there are no stupid questions. This is how we grow. This is how we learn by being honest about what we know and what we don't know. And, um, you know, sometimes getting our biases out on the table and realizing them. A hundred percent. And including more people, right? I feel like I got a lot of questions last year from different companies to talk about race. And when we were asked about having the conversation about race and putting workshops together, I was like, okay, just by the way, you should know that we're going to bring an indigenous person as well, because we can't talk about race in Canada without having this conversation. Just be intentional about including the different groups, because there's so many stories to be shared and there's so many ways of working, right? I think the mining industry, unfortunately, has done a lot of bad things, but I think there's time to correct. And definitely with indigenous groups, I think there's ways of working and collaborating with them that's very different than what we've done in the past. 
there's an indigenous consultant who works with me and she always says from her perspective, innovation would be for any mining companies to actually come to them and say, let's have a conversation. How do you want to be, how do we want to discuss this instead of here's the consultation framework that I designed to work with you. So I think there's so many ways that we could look at things differently. Fully. Yeah. There's, it's, it amazes me how much overlap there is in the way best practice is evolving in engaging outside the fence with what we ought to be doing internally as well. A hundred percent. Let's shift a bit more, looking to the future around some technology stuff, because I know you've also worked in digital transformation, so I feel like you're probably a bit on the ball on this one. Two things. One, I'm wondering about how exciting you find the accelerator side effects that come with Industry 4.0, so particularly, say, around the impact of automation and what that does to change shift work. You know, we know that certain types of jobs, whether it's shift work or just site life in general, are inaccessible to a lot of people. Well, if we're looking at an automated future, what is mining 4.0? How interesting are some of these side effects to really move the needle on the diversity inclusion conversation? COVID has been a good pass for us, even on the ability to work from different places, the idea of remote operations and all of that. I think everything enables us to test these concepts and go a bit further. I think one of the bigger challenge that we always had with the future of the workforce and the future of mining. It's really how to include people and how to include different people, not a lot of the same. And how we had projects with uh, different mining companies where the workforce was a group of like over 50 who didn't want to have the iPads to do differently at the plants, right? And we had to have a whole user experience design with them to really understand their pain points and really design things that would work for them from to shift from the different ways that they're doing like their nodes and PLC design. I think there's things that we can do, but I similar to the deck that we shared from Dr. Wendy Cook here, I think there's a lot to do with listening to people, right? Like it's not like you're eliminating the workforce today or that they're gonna go away. It's like listen to the workforce listen to the pain point, then look at the technology and see how that solves the problems we have and then go this step further to say, okay, now what's the next step? When you look at remote operations, remote workspace, and the use of different tools, like I remember working with a C- C- chief information officer or chief technology officer who wanted the super like the procurement portion to be like the Amazon of mining. So it's like, okay, to do that, we need to do a few steps first. So like when I look, at everything digital and everything transformation towards the future of the workforce being the talent strategy or being the digital strategy, I think we need to look at that curve, the change maturity curve, because you can jump. How are we going to move people along the way? And then if automation is actually enabling for different people to participate or to have a more inclusive ways of including people in mining, how do you do that? Are you listening to the needs of people? Because I feel like there are designs and designs, and we, we look at it all the time from an AI perspective, how the engineers sitting behind AI might not have the diversity that we need for AI to include everybody. So are we just doing the same in mining, just looking from one lenses and trying to put that in place and say, okay, now we have the future of mining. Now you figure out how you fit into it. So I think we need to be more conscious about people when we're doing digital designs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I personally get really excited about the potential of these kinds of technologies to actually be explicitly harnessed for environmental and social impacts. And I wonder 
Do you know about some technological applications specifically for diversity and inclusion purposes that the industry might expect to be commercialized and mainstreamed in the next few years that could really help? There is a lot of then around the recruiting piece because I feel like that's the first focus on diversity and inclusion. So that's where people went first, right? Where that's where they start us actually focused to design new things. We're seeing more, so would that be uh, like the bias elimination piece around the bias elimination? Processes? So there, there are a few applications. There are some that will work directly with the resume. There are some that will work on the interview cycle to help you to define questions or ask things that are going to be more repetitive, so you won't change your questions as you go along the way or depending on people's answers. So there's different ways that they're really helping with that that portion of the exercise. Some of the empathy exercise, I see a lot of VR and AI work going towards that direction and helping you having experiences that maybe other underrepresented groups that you don't necessarily understand their world and you can kind of step in into their world from time to time and say, okay, just like you would operate something remotely or do VR on your house, you can be like sitting in a room as that person and see how people react to you and then have that experience. So as a blind person, as a person of color for a day or for that meeting and then really realize how that feels. So there are a few things that are pretty cool. Yeah. Very cool. I, I like that a lot. So what are some of the things that you think we often still get wrong in this industry, even when we have the best of intentions? Like, what are we, what are we often missing in our approach? I would answer as more of a professional or a person-to-person thing. I feel like we have the tendency of thinking of your experience as the experience of others. So I think for every leader in the mining industry, for every operational supervisor, everybody who's part of the industry, and even HR resources, like even people who are working with people on a daily basis, they need to look at the industry and really listen to the people around them versus positioning their experience as the truth. Because I think we we fail people a lot when we do that, when we think, okay, I got here and yes, maybe it was a little bit hard, but you can do it if you want, or just do this a little bit this way that you get there. There is mentorship and there is mentorship, but mentorship that tries to mold people to do exactly your way, because there is a way to get there that you believe it's the right way. There's a little bit of a challenge with that. And I think we need to like get together and really look at an industry, look at what we're doing and the image that we're sending about the industry externally. So that from your area of sustainability, from inclusion diversity, like are we having an industry that's attractive to people to join? And what is that going to be in the future? So like when we talk about the image of the industry with society, I think we would need to work together very strongly to make it charming again, right? I remember oh, it's wanting super unsexy. to work. Like no one wants to work <laughs> in mining. And it's frustrating because we have so many interesting challenges to be solved. And the whole thing about going digital as well is that the level of skills and the type of skills we're asking are different. So if you're going to go to a Waterloo or whoever university you pick and say, hey, I want the super smart kids uh, who are doing technology to come work for mining, but you're competing with the technology companies or with the management consulting firms, you're not going to win, right? There are studies, I believe they're from the US and I I can send to you later so you can put it on the links for the episode, but essentially when you ask engineering students who they want to work for, mining doesn't show. So yeah. it doesn't matter how well mining pays, just doesn't show. So, well, so how do you think that we can change that? 
I think we need to work together on ESG for sure. I think we need to start playing those indicators to a place where we're actually taking actions to change them. So I think that's the importance of the indicators, right? Once we identify the areas where we're failing, let's work to improve them and let's have a long-term plan. I feel like we're still working very in a reaction way. If mm. we have a problem today, let's fix this problem today. But no, let's look at the industry 10 years from now. And yes, we cannot guarantee commodity prices or what's going to happen. But if you can play for the plan for the future of mining with technology and everything else, why can we not think about people and think about how we're going to essentially start working with different educational systems, colleges, universities yes. to really make a plan where you're making, like I, I talk to University of Toronto a lot with the LaSalle Institute and if they start, it's the same retention problems that we have with mining companies. They might not stay. How do you entertain the students in a way that they're excited about working in mining? And to me, yeah. once I started working in mining, I was, I'm still excited about mining because as an engineer, you get totally. to do so many things. So why can we not take them to different mining companies to actually show them different things that we can do and how we actually start implementing technology mining and the possibilities? We don't do an amazing job of opening the doors and, and really participating all. in educational systems and really welcoming people into mining. We just, we want them when we want them. And that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without basically laying the groundwork. So then what, what would your advice be to a non-traditional mining candidate? let's say, who's thinking about maybe this industry could be interesting, maybe not, I don't really know. What would you be, what would your advice be to them? I would say try it. Like I, I was like, I didn't expect to work in mining. As I said, like I, I fell into it, but the whole thing, if you are a technical engineer or if you're a business person or if you're a finance person, the challenge that the industry faces from a professional perspective, things that you're going to have to learn, things that you're going to have to really dedicate yourself to figure out new ways. We, we are trying to find new solutions all the time. And yes, the word traditional is there and it's sometimes it's hard, but we're here to change. I stay, and yes, I'm an entrepreneur now working in a business that people might say, oh, this is nothing to do with mining, but I talk to miners on a daily basis. <laughs> to me, it's like seeing the, the flexibility and the opportunities that exist and it's big business and it's a big industry in so many countries. So the possibilities are endless. So I think you need to look into the possibilities that you can create for your career by walking into mining. And if you look at my resume, look at all the different things that I've done by having a career in mining, from management consulting to engineering to community relationship. Like I've, I've done a lot. Yeah, 100%. I really wish that more young people knew about the industry and found it interesting because I fell into it too. And I'm so glad that I did. I could have so much more easily on any number of paths not discovered it and my life would be so different. And representation will change a little bit of that too, will help mining. I think that's the whole thing with the investments in diversity and inclusion. To me, when you look at some of the pictures on the mining companies websites today and some of the things we're talking about here, you might not feel like you have a space there depending on which community you're coming from or which group you represent. But I think once we start changing those pictures and being a little bit more inclusive and more diverse, people might be a little bit more attracted to join as well. So, Jamile, uh, you mentioned reading a lot of resources when you first started learning about this. I'm wondering if there was someone who is new to this subject, whether you're an ordinary employee or you're a leader of a mining company, what might be some of the resources that you would recommend them to, to look at? For sure. 
there are tons of YouTube videos from actual specialists. So one to watch and to hear and listen very carefully when you want to learn about privilege and for sure on the race discussion is Verna Myers. She's currently the VP Inclusion Diversity for Netflix. She has, I think, a few YouTube or TED Talks available and you can learn so much from her experience. From two organizations that publish a lot of information and research based on what works, what doesn't for inclusion diversity, one of the main ones in Canada would say the Gender and Economy Institute from UFT. So you can reach their papers. They have very simple one-pagers on, for example, the discussion around setting or not targets. I feel like their resources are probably one of the easiest ones to read that you can it can help you to form your own opinion on is that the right thing to do or not. So Gender and Economy Institute from UFT and the Behavior Insights Institute from the government of the UK. They publish a lot of work that they're doing directly with organizations on testing inclusion practices. For currently, it's focused on gender, but I'm sure we can learn a lot from the work we're doing gender to use with other underrepresented groups. But their research is published from a perspective of this works, this can potentially work, and this doesn't work. And it's all based on information that they're collecting directly from organizations. So yeah, I'm very fan of research-based papers. So use this three. I think you're going to learn a lot. Yeah, I think so too. So Jamila, when you think about the future of diversity and inclusion in the mining industry, what are you afraid of and what are you most excited about? I'm afraid of us losing this thing. It feels like it's a huge momentum for us now. So the work that I'm doing in Brazil, the work that I'm doing in Canada, it feels like the space has been created and people are engaging with the team and wanting to learn and make changes. When I think about it, I just hope it doesn't go away and I don't think it will go. What I'm excited about, I'm excited about the world that we can create. Like I think the moment we start opening spaces, we don't know what we're capable to do. We never had companies that are fully diverse and super inclusive, at least not that I know of. Once we get to a place where the cultures are really welcoming and allowing people to be who they want to be, I think innovation and everything else that we're discussing here and our relationship with society as a whole will change completely and we're going to be in a better space. It's so hopeful. I love it. So you know the show is called Prospecting Purpose. I want to ask you what purpose means to you in the context of diversity, inclusion, this mining industry, and trying to build a better future. I had that question going in my head for so long. So I operated in this space as an engineer, as kind of a business operator, and then as a management consultant. But there was always something in the back of my head on what else, right? Like, what can you do to really make changes? And I think figuring out how to use your voice and connecting with people in a way that you actually make a difference to me has been, it's been the most amazing thing that I've done. Like, I I don't know what the future holds for me. The shift from going to consulting in digital to consulting in inclusion diversity to connecting with people talking about something so vulnerable and personal to really connecting with leaders to say, do you know how this works? And do you know the privilege that you have and how this operates on a daily basis? And then starting seeing them speaking up and and making the changes themselves to me has been just amazing. I have my hard days for sure, where you hear things that you wish you didn't hear. Like it's 2021 and you still have conversations that you're like, really? Like pick up a book 
it's 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 something that really makes me wake up with hope and makes me want to speak up and create that space and again using my connections using my voice to to create space for others so hopefully i will be able to continue to do that beautiful thank you i wanted to know from you from all the podcast episodes that you're recording how do you see diversity and inclusion playing a role and when you think about sustainability and what you say you're passionate about that the future of the workforce and how we're going to change how do you see this connection and what you're expecting to see in the future? It's it's huge for me. Like part of why I find this industry so frustrating is is being a woman and I don't even have all these other potential, you know, diversity indicators. I actually studied gender studies back in university and it was something that when I walked into the industry, I immediately felt it was implicit. It was never it was never explicitly said to me, but implicitly, don't you dare bring that kind of stuff into this workplace. That is like, that belongs in la-la land. We don't have any room for that in this industry. And that has always frustrated me because I'm not someone who likes to hold my tongue. And it always felt wrong. Just like it always felt wrong that when you walk into a boardroom, you don't see a single person that comes from the community who is having to experience all these environmental and social negative impacts. And more often than not, if we're really honest, aren't getting a lot of positive impacts, even now in 2021. There's something that feels very wrong there. It always has. And so for me, when I think about, you know, this bigger prospecting purpose, diversity, equity, inclusion, inequality in this world on so many levels, 70% of the global population is experiencing increased inequality. More people than not think that the future for their kids is going to be worse, not better. We are in a very serious social crisis. And so when I think about an industry like this that is so important for crafting a low carbon future, we can't think about that without some deep thinking about social justice. And that starts inside the company. That's what it means to me. I think it's so important. And I don't work explicitly in any diversity and inclusion work. And probably part of that is because it's this passion inside me that has been like squashed for so many years. And I am just so excited to start seeing a lot of people want to work in this. I will admit that a lot of the folks who are doing diversity and inclusion work right now in this industry, I look at their backgrounds and I'm like, wait, but you actually, like, you don't have a background in any of this. This is just, I question, is this something you want to work in just because it's new and it's trendy? It's like, sometimes I have that concern in the same way that suddenly you see all these randos um, in communications or in finance suddenly calling themselves ESG experts. I'm like, you've never worked on environmental and social and governance issues in your career. I think that there's an authentic element there that you have to be wary in in seeking. And, you know, that's like, that's how I came a- across you. When I, when I chose to reach out to you, I like, I really Googled you a lot, you know, and I asked around and I'm like, yeah, okay, this, this girl's legit. I want to talk to her. <laughs> yeah. And I feel you, like, I think there is a challenge with the industry and how people portray themselves for sure. I think there is we need to be careful about specialities and what is it that we're proposing to do. So to me, my work is very much a work around strategy and getting people to think about all these topics we discussed today. When it gets to the psychology of it and the change management and how to get that going, I bring a behavior psychologist to work with me, behavior scientist. And the same, like I don't talk about indigenous in Canada as if I knew the topic deep in my soul like yeah i can study as much as i can but the reality is if i bring an indigenous consultant from their community the honest truth about everything that's going on and how it impacts them and the history of her family or their family in general 
you just have a, such a bigger impact on how they want to be seen and how they want to be heard. And the same with every single group. And it's not me advocating for black people to talk about black experience and white people to talk about white experience or women to talk about women. But I think there is space for a voice and there is space for a speciality when we're talking about specifics. So like my core thing is analytics and strategy and let's get the conversation to be where it needs to be. And that's when people call me, how can you help me and help you get the conversation where it needs to be? And I think people need to be more honest about that, that we want to see change. So focus where the change needs to be. But going back to your point about sustainability and the future, I think when companies start looking with these lenses of inclusivity into the social responsibility through the whole governance framework to the sustainability framework as a whole, and they start being very intentional about how they put the investment, how they report the information, yeah. how they create the programs. Doing. Yeah, the actual yeah, it's doing. It's too easy to just make another pretty sustainability report. The actual doing of the real work is so much harder. A hundred percent. And I, I participated in a Congress from Spain a few weeks ago. It was quite interesting to see because like most of them were PhD in social responsibility and, and on the extractive industry. And I came to present Women in Mind in Brazil and how we're working straight with Ibran and the companies to actually set up the indicators to have plans on the table for them to execute. There was this whole conversation at the end on how you engage industry because they have all this beautiful research on here is how you're supposed to engage community and here's how you can actually get these things done, but they don't have the entry into the organizations. They don't have an entry within the mining companies to say, can we try to do this way? Because this way has been researched and we can probably achieve something better here. So we need to like figure out how to make this connections better. And if you were to ask where are you going to end your career or what's the next step to you, to me, it's like to be this connector. I think we need to bring universe to the table. We need to bring mining associations like it is MAC and PDAC and CIM. And then the mining companies to say, okay, someone knows how to do this better or someone is doing this right. Can we all work together to figure this out? Because we work in silos issue and then there's all this <laughs> loss for no reason. Like, why are we losing all this knowledge without connecting people and getting them to share the good things? And we just trying to be ahead, but then we all lose at the end. Totally. Silos, competition, transparency, collaboration. These, I swear, every episode this comes up, doesn't matter what the topic is, the same issues at heart of how we operate keep coming up. But I feel good about that, right? Like each time someone brings up these subjects, it's like validation. We know what we need to work on. Yes, we definitely know what we need to work on. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode. This is Liz Friel on Prospecting Purpose. Thanks for joining us. And thank you so much, Jimmy Day, for being my co-host today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hopefully we're going to do this again soon. <laughs> Hope so. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode. If you're looking to connect with Jamile or learn more about her work, you can reach her via LinkedIn or at ind101.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This episode is powered by Simpact, an ESG think tank and sustainability advisory firm on a mission to shape a more sustainable, socially just, and brighter future for all. Visit us at sympact.ca to learn more. What's your purpose? <laughs>